Our reading this evening is from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 9. Uh, If you're using the church Bible, that's on page 13. Genesis chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued towards the Negev. So, what is the difference between an encyclopedia and a novel? Well, an encyclopedia is certainly heavier, unless you go in for reading very long novels. But, I mean, what's the difference in the way that you read them? When you use an encyclopedia, you would simply turn to the entry you're interested in, say, asparagus, And um, you would read it avidly, I'm sure. But you wouldn't look at the entry before, which in the encyclopedia I looked at was on um, asps, uh, nor would you look at the one after it, which in the one I looked at was on aspartame, and I couldn't tell you what either of those two are. In fact, you just wouldn't look at them unless you were really bored and wanted to know uh, as you were reading about asparagus. But... Imagine reading a novel in that way. You'd open up the book halfway through, read the third paragraph down, and you wouldn't have a clue what was going on. It wouldn't make any sense. You wouldn't know who the characters are, how the plot is unfolding. So the question is, which of these two different approaches is appropriate when it comes to reading the Bible? Too often, people do treat the Bible more like an encyclopedia than a novel, opening it almost at random to find words of wisdom. Whilst it's true, as we thought last time, that all scripture is useful, that actually doesn't give us liberty to open it wherever we like and pluck out our favourite verses. You may have heard the saying that um, a text without the context is a con. Well, that might be a bit harsh, but we do need to think about where the passage fits into the big picture, the context 
of the whole Bible. Not just the, the bit which comes immediately before and the, media, the bit which comes immediately afterwards, although that is obviously very important. But we do need to treat the Bible more like a novel. Not to say, of course, that the Bible is fiction. Much of it is story, but they are true stories. And I hope that one of the benefits that we will gain as we uh, take on this E100 Bible reading challenge is seeing how those individual episodes, sometimes ones which we're very familiar with, fit together and how they fit importantly into that overarching story of the whole Bible. Last time, if you were here, um, we uh, summarised the whole of the Bible into four main blocks. God made up, makes a good world. We mess it up. God puts it right. We all enjoy it. And not only is that a summary of the whole Bible, but it's also a pattern that is repeated within the Bible as well. And if you missed that uh, opening section, hopefully that uh, video will be available on the church website uh, shortly. It's certainly available now on YouTube. My task in the next 25 minutes or so is to help us zoom out from the detail that we have been looking at to see that big picture, a broad sweep we're going to be covering right the way from creation through to the first kings of Israel. We're looking back at the first 15 readings that hopefully many of you have read and looking forward to the next 20. But even if you're not uh, following the challenge, let me just tell you, or if you weren't here last time, let me just remind you of the story so far. So, previously on E100, uh, we saw last time how many of these themes that we've just looked at are contained in just the first 11 chapters of the Bible. God makes a good world. Adam and Eve mess it up. God judges the world. God saves Noah and his family. Mankind tries to go it alone. Which brings us to chapter 12 that Steve read to us just now which starts God's great rescue plan for the whole of humanity. You might like to turn it up. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. It starts with a wonderful promise. God says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And through the ensuing chapters, we see, don't we, how God builds on that promise. So in chapter 15, I wonder if you uh, read it, and, and if you did, did you spot one of the spine, signposts that we looked at last time? covenant. We see God confirming his promise to Abram. Chapter 15 verse 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants I give this land. 
And then God tests Abram's faith even more by asking him to sacrifice his son, Isaac. I wonder how you reacted to that story. Did you ask yourself, what would I do if God asked me to do something like that? Anyway, after that testing, God confirms his promise again in in chapter 22, verse 17. He says, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. So putting these three bits together, what we see is that Abraham's descendants will be a great nation. They will possess the promised land and they will be God's own people. And get this, through them, even those who are not Abraham's descendants physically will enter God's blessing. A promise, you see, which looks forward to Jesus Christ opening up the way for all people, Jew and Gentile, to be made right with God. So you see, you and I have a place in this story. You and I, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, can be beneficiaries of this promise to Abraham over 3,000 years ago. And in many ways, these promises, this collection of promises, set up the whole of the rest of the Bible. And we can see three clear themes in them. Blessing, land and people. The blessing reverses the curse of Genesis 3, which we saw being worked out in the flood, for example. The land reverses the flood, of Genesis 7, for the land took away the place where the uh, people lived and where they were all drowned. And now God promises a new land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And the promise of a people reverses the scattering that we read about at the Tower of Babel, when God came down and multiplied the languages. And now you see he's going to establish a nation, a great nation, a new society established um, on the basis of a right relationship with him. That's the plan. But if you were reviewing the status of this particular project, you'd have to say it's not going very well so far. Abraham's family were a motley bunch. History of uh, family problems And we've seen just in these early chapters of Genesis, dishonesty and deception on a grand scale. And if that was not bad enough, it now looks as though famine would break up the family altogether and put an end to the whole project. Just worth noting in passing here that just because we read something in the Bible doesn't make it right. In every uh, passage, particularly in the historical narrative passages that we're reading in Genesis and Exodus, we need to ask ourselves, what does this passage tell us about God? Is there an example here to 
uh, follow or is there one to avoid? Anyway, we move on from there to Joseph. And you may be surprised to discover that the Bible devotes so much space to the story of just one man. But running through the whole of the story of Joseph, we see how, this, how God is working out his sovereign purposes. No matter how bad the situation gets for Joseph, God always uses it for good. So throughout the story of Joseph, we see what? We see another of the signposts we looked at last time, God at work. Which should make us stop, shouldn't it? And think, how is God at work in my life? How is God at work in the life of our nation? Of the world that we live in? Joseph summarises it um, perfectly by when he's talking to his, his brothers who had sold him into slavery. He says, chapter 45, verse 8, So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me the father of Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. And you see, the fascinating thing about this is, that is not how it would have been reported on the Nile 9 o'clock news. But that's the reality. That's what we're told in the scriptures. The problem is that we don't have the luxury, do we, of uh, running commentary on today's world's events, but we should be asking ourselves prayerfully, how do we see God at work in our world today? I wonder if there are situations in your own life or in the wider world which seem hopeless or where God seems distant. The story of Joseph teaches us that we can trust that God has things under control and he is working his purposes out even when it doesn't seem that way. God is strengthening uh, our faith. God is strengthening our trust in him. Something which he can put to good use at some future date in, his, in, in our lives as we serve him. And sometimes that something is only apparent long after the event. In a later chapter, Joseph puts it even more directly. Again, speaking to his brothers in chapter 50, verse 20, he says... He says this, you intended to harm me, but God intended to accomplish good what is now being done, the saving of many lives. It's remarkable, isn't it? God was working through the evil intentions of wicked men to bring about his saving purposes. And in the case of Joseph, he's referring to saving people from famine. But as Christians, surely it is impossible for us to read this verse without recognising it as a picture of how one day evil men 
would intend harm for Jesus Christ. And how God uses Jesus' death on the cross to bring about the saving of lives. Not this time from famine, but from death. And that was the great blessing that God had in mind from the very beginning. And that's what makes this story of Joseph so significant. The account of of Joseph forms an important bridge into the next phase of Israel's history as the family becomes a nation. And that's the story so far. That's where you'll have got to if you've read the first 15 readings of uh, Essential 100. So now let's move and see what's coming up. Let's do a bit of a preview. Because we come first to the book of Exodus. Over 200 uh, years elapsed between the turning of the page from Genesis to Exodus. And the family of some 70 people who had gone into Egypt have now become a fully-fledged nation of some 600,000. Such a numerous people group in a fertile part of, a, of this country presented a real threat to the leaders of the nation. And so they were oppressed. God, however, had not forgotten his people. He raised up Moses, a reluctant but effective leader who trusted God. And if you were here last Sunday morning, you'll remember the account of uh, the birth of uh, of Moses. And indeed, if you've been using WordLive recently, these passages will be familiar to you as well. We will see as we read through Exodus how God reveals himself to Moses how he calls him to return to Egypt to set his people free from Egyptian bondage. And in chapter 12, we find another signpost, sacrifice. Would you turn with me to um, Exodus chapter 12, which is on page 69 of the Church Bibles. Exodus 12, verse 6. Moses commands every family to slaughter a one-year-old lamb in perfect condition. And then, verse 7, they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. First sight, this is a pretty strange command, isn't it? But what is going on here is that God is confirming his covenant through a sacrifice. This is a picture, if you like, of the way that God brings people into relationship with himself. For the blood of the Lamb is the blood of a substitute in the place of the firstborn who would otherwise have been killed in every household. Verse 12, God says this, On that same night I will pass through Egypt And strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. 
No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. It's important that we understand what's going on here. The, the, the blood on the doorposts is, is a, a sign, but it's not a sign for the people. They're inside the houses. They won't be able to see the sign. No, it's literally a sign instead of you. A sign that is in your place, a token of you. It is that blood which turns away God's wrath. He will pass over. And once again, as Christians, it's easy, isn't it, for us to see this as a foreshadowing of the cross. And don't you find it amazing that here in the second book of the Bible, we have a prototype, if you like, of the cross. An early picture which helps to uh, reveal to us the way that God is going to work many centuries later. And which two of our signposts do we see writ large over this passage? Well, once again, it is grace and faith. Because this is God's unmerited provision for his people and it is claimed by faith. It didn't come automatically, you see, to the people of Israel. This was no case of postcode lottery. This is action that is based on faith. I mean, just think. Without faith... Faith to believe that God is going to act in the way that he said he had. Without that faith, they wouldn't have been obedient to his commands. And imagine, for example, the reaction the next morning from any family that had decided that this was a silly idea. Anyway, they didn't want to make a mess of their front door. What would have happened to their firstborn son? Grace and faith shine like neon lights over this passage. You may have heard it said that the Old Testament is about law and the New Testament speaks about grace. And I hope you can see from this passage that that is just not the case. But God has only just begun developing the faith of his people. The next big test comes as they leave Egypt, before they experience the the rescue, the deliverance that God has planned. And Sue is going to read this to us. Um, if you'd like to turn to it, it's on page 71, um, Exodus 14, chapter, uh, verse 10. <clears throat> As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. 
The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then moving on to verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off, so they had difficulty driving, and the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites, the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And then on to verse 29. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Egyptians saw the great, sorry, and when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses his servant. I wanted to read that passage because it is a defining moment in Israel's history. It's celebrated in the Psalms, and you might have read about it in Psalm 136 this morning. It's talked about in the New Testament. At the start, the Israelites were facing their their worst nightmare. Battle, probable defeat at the hands of Pharaoh's army, and a return back into slavery. But at the end, not only has Israel escaped from slavery in Egypt... But the source of their fears, Pharaoh's army, is utterly destroyed as well. No one is going to drag them back. They are free forever. We watched a clip of uh, Prince of Egypt last week. That was the beginning of Prince of Egypt. The end captures this extremely powerfully, and I do recommend that to you. But what happens to God's redeemed people. Well, they come, chapter 20, to Mount Sinai, where God gives them a revelation of his character, which we call law. Chapter 20, uh, (coughs) and that's our next signpost, chapter 20 gives us the Ten Commandments by which God shows how redeemed people are to live in relationship with him. And Again, I just want you to grasp this fact. It's not the law that makes them a redeemed people. It's not that God is saying, if you can keep this law, then I will make you a covenant nation. But God is saying, I've brought you to myself and I want you to live in a way that um, matches my redeeming grace. Just turn back to Exodus 19 verse 4. You have, you yourselves, um, says God, have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So they are his people already. Now, he says, now if you obey me and fully keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. That is, you will be in practice what you are already 
by grace. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Another phrase which rings New Testament bells, isn't it? The law then is not the means by which they are made a covenant people, but the means by which they know how to live so as to enjoy the covenant blessings. Now that's a great idea, but you know, sadly, despite all that God has done for his people, what do they do the very next day? They turn their back on him. And we find a, another signpost, idolatry. Exodus verse 32, uh, chapter 22, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses, who was up the mountain, was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, let's make gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, have, your sons and daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took, them what, uh, took what they handed him and they made them into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with the tool. And they said, and this, this is the shocking bit. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Is that not hard to credit? Here is a group of people who have been first-hand witnesses. They walked through the Red Sea three months earlier. One of the most dramatic examples of God's saving power of all time. And they, they can say of idols, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. But folks, let's not point the finger at them. Because these may be early, and this may be an early example of such shocking behaviour. But it's certainly not the last. We can see plenty more examples as we read through the passages coming up over the next few weeks. And it's true in our own lives as well, isn't it? We too have seen the great things that God has done in our lives. And yet, we turn to the idol of self-dependence, self-sufficiency. What does this passage tell us about God? Does it give us an example to follow or one to avoid? Over the next four weeks, we will see highs and lows of the people of God in their journey of faith. Over the first three weeks in the E100 Bible Reading Challenge, we have discovered the source of some of the big themes of the Bible. We have identified some important signposts. God is at work. Number one, from day one. The very first thing that we discover. He responds to sin by making a covenant, which is an act of pure grace. 
requiring only the response of faith to restore a right relationship with him. And over the next four weeks, we will, indis- we will discover all of those signposts all over again, plus the additional ones of sacrifice, a means by which God achieves rescue for his people, for whom he gives law, that they may live in right relationship with him. But instead they turn to idolatry. And as you read on, I hope that you will come to see the Bible not as a collection of 66 books, but rather this single story, this overarching story, a revelation of God's great rescue plan for the whole of humanity. And if that's a rescue that you know, then rejoice in it. If it's a rescue that you don't yet know, then read on because there's a lot more to come. Because the good news is that God has not changed. You know, it is amazing, isn't it? That God didn't give up on his people. He didn't give up in the Garden of Eden. He didn't give up at the Tower of Babel. He didn't give up at Mount Sinai. He didn't give up at all of the subsequent times that we will read about in the next few weeks. And he doesn't give up on us either. He is always opening up to us a a way to return to him by faith in Jesus. And so let's pray that that through the pages of Scripture over the coming weeks, God will reveal himself in new and exciting ways to us and draw us deeper into relationship with himself through Jesus Christ, the true and living word.